If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature this podcast is powered by Acast how are you there it is podcast time I'm here Mr. D all good my man as well as can be expected (laughs) yeah I know what you mean I know what you mean. Do you know what I mean? It's I kind do. of. I know, I know, I know. It's midweek. It's kind of. It's draggy. It's draggy. It's the whole lot. Yeah. Not Mario. But we're not here not, to bring Not Mario down. Draggy, just really draggy. <laughs> actually, you know that draggy is what cyclists say if a hill is actually very difficult. They refer to it as draggy. The hill drags you back. And the reason I know this is <laughs> about a year ago or two years ago, I tried to go cycling with our mate Rupert. Oh, yeah. No, Dave Kelly, whose nickname is Rupert, who's a proper cyclist. <laughs> And uh, as I'd be spluttering, like really spluttering, he would refer to a, a road as a yeah. little bit draggy. <laughs> and of course, he'd be gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd he'd be, fly up. Yeah. Well, actually, a lot of my guys. A lot of your mammal mates. A lot of my mammal mates, yeah, they've all become mammals. But they're planning this trip, and they have been all year. And Rocky is the leader. And he's planning this trip to do the Von 2, which is 21 kilometers straight up. Very, very draggy. Very draggy. And are they all into the mammal kit? Oh, yeah. It's like, I I always find, if you really want to see the mammal, Ennis Scary, half past 10, Sunday morning, in the cafe there. They're all there, yeah. All there. It's like a baboon. (laughs) They're like the baboons mate, they show different colour arses, (laughs) right? It's like the mammals are the same. They've got purples and blues and the whole thing. Anyway, (laughs) let us go. Let us talk about economics and higher order things, John. Indeed. Interesting piece of news. We'll watch it. We won't really analyze it, but we'll watch it. Janet Yellen, who not only was the head of the Fed, is now the head of the Treasury, is married, imagine the pillow talk, to a Nobel Prize winner for economics. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, here's a little Remember we were talking about me and the graphs the other night? Here's a graph, darling, for you, right? Wow, look at the graph on that. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Look, married to a chap called George Akerlof, whose whose seminal paper was The Market for Lemons. The second-hand You, you mentioned this before. Yeah, you weren't yes. impressed. <laughs> you weren't impressed. He's like, give Nobel Prizes out for that sort of yeah. stuff. Anyway, it's about information and economics. We'll talk about that. But Janet Yellen said, 
the United States under Biden is looking to accelerate a 20% global corporation tax. So the Americans right. will advocate that the fair corporation tax for all corporations, but particularly American corporations, obviously, will be that they pay 20% no matter where they are. What do, you, whoa, whoa, whoa. what do you mean, no matter where they are? Now, that's, of course, the Americans don't set Irish tax policy. Yeah, but that's what I was going to say. Because we're so. a sovereign country, right? Yeah, yeah. But what it's, it's momentum towards a single unified tax code, which would mean, John, that outliers would actually be outliers. So it's not that the Americans can come in and t- say to us, or anybody else for yeah. that matter, you know, you cannot use your tax system. But what it would be, it would be signaling that you would be pretty much out on your own. And Ireland's obsession with not being seen to be a bad boy, an outlier or an outsider would mean that the moral pressure coming from the United States, if not real pressure, could be quite high. However, yeah, what I think it does is it gives us the opportunity, you know, all these other ideas that we've been talking about, about equity, for taxes and hosting them and all that sort of... It means that it gives us the opportunity to be much more inventive and creative. But can I just ask you, the EU have always put us under pressure to change our corporate tax. Yeah, they've always said, particularly the French. But we've we've weathered that. We've always weathered that. Yeah. So we'll weather this as well. But we will weather it. And of course, in the EU, you have various different tax rates. I mean, Estonia has zero tax. You know, yeah, Bulgaria yeah. has zero tax. It's not yeah. like Ireland is not, the Netherlands uses all sorts of tax arbitrage all the time. So it's not as if Ireland is unique. I'm just saying what is interesting is for the first time now, the United States yeah. is going against, it comes back to our point the other day, that the economics of Reagan is over. The economics of Reagan that Paul McCulley was talking about are all about preferential treatment for capital. Yeah. So lower taxes for capital, tax deductions for capital, I'm just saying the wind is changing. Right. And the wind is going in a direction, and that direction will mean that Ireland has got to be more creative, more imaginative, and actually more 21st century. I think we can do it, and we can explore some of those options in a little while. But that means we should get going kind of now. Yeah. Start planning it now. We should start planning. We should be actually trying to be at the table, make make suggestions. I mean, the great expression is, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Right. <laughs> and you don't want to be on the menu when the big boys start eating. Yeah. And on the menu here, John, was the Americans were setting out really their menu for mm. the future. So they were talking, we're doing this internally. We're doing this with the Fed. We're going to raise this sort of thing. Right. Then they said, this is what we're going to do internationally. And this is fascinating in terms of just the language that Yellen used. So Yellen was reaffirming, so in contrast to Trump, America's commitment to the liberal order, America's commitment to world organizations, basically going back to the America of the 1948 post-Second World War. Right. United Nations, the World Health Organization, world trade, basically America being the pillar an anchor tenant of everything. Yeah. But with respect to China, she said something interesting. We're going to talk about China now, but listen to this language. She said... She warned about economic ties with China, which were more complex. So she said, the United States needs to have a strong presence in global markets and a level playing field. We will cooperate with willing partners to protect and enforce the rule-based order. The rule-based order is an expression by a guy called McKinnon, who was the American architect 
of the Marshall Plan. Brilliant, brilliant American civil servant. But then she goes on to say, she talked about partners and protection and rules-based. Then she goes on to say, with China, our relationships are more complex. And this is a quote. Our economic relationship, this is the quote, with China, like our broader relationship with China, will be competitive where it should be, collaborative where it can be, and adversarial where it must be. Ooh. So let's go to an amazing, brilliant journalist, Angelica Ung of the TP Times, who also, in a tweet today, when I was going to say, in a tweet said, and tell everybody I'm single too, I'm sick of Tinder. <laughs> so do you know that we, we could be like Tinder for nerds, John? <laughs> yeah, economic yeah. Tinder. Could you imagine, where did you meet? Oh, we met the David Beckwith's podcast. <laughs> it's all ahead of us, man. Let's, let's branch out. Let's branch out. Like, hey, Tinder for nerds. Here we go. Let's talk to Angelica in Taiwan. Angelica, how are you? Hello, hello. Hello. Now we have to officially invite you into the crazy world of Irish economics, of which you will never... Oh, well, I've I've been listening from afar. It's been absolutely delightful. No, it's great. Fantastic. Big big fan of your show. Brilliant. Well, now you're honest. You're going to tell us all about Taiwan. No, I was just going to... I was explaining to John just before you were going... What is lovely about doing a podcast is this sense of building a community of people all over the world. I mean, it's great. It's, it's, it's great because I was listening to your show and now I'm on your show. <laughs> so cool. So, Angelica, let's get straight into it. Let's get straight into it about let's Ta- go Ta- straight into Taiwan it. Chinese relations. What's the story there? Just a bit of background. The relationships since the 50s, let's say, and then what's happening right now? Oh, my God. Goodness, when you say just a bit of background, where do I even start, David? Where do I even start? Um, in a way, it's, it's almost easier just to just to say where we are at okay. now. Well, where we are, okay. okay, where we are All now. Right. Where, where we are, we are now. now is, for, for time out of mind, Taiwan has been just functionally its own island. Okay, first of all, it's, it's a little bit mad because you know, when the nationalists basically got their ass whooped by the communists, they retreated to Taiwan. And then they still lay claim to the whole of China from Taiwan. They're like, we are free China. So you government still thinks, listen, it's only a matter of time before we're going back to the mainland. Well, this is a bit in the past now. This was uh, maybe, and the U.S. kind of played along like for something crazy, like 25 years. The U.S. absolutely refused to accept Mao's China. They didn't have regular diplomatic relations with them. Instead, it supported Taipei, and Taipei was the one in the United Nations. And of course, it's an absolute facade. I still remember when I was a little girl, when I was nine years old, I'm aging myself, we still had textbooks that said, one day we're going to bring life back to the motherland. <laughs> and uh, it, it was it was absolutely mad. You still had people who were supposedly, you know, the governor of all these provinces in China from Taiwan. And of course it was an absolute facade. It could not continue forever. And so it was Nixon that finally went to China, um, Kissinger and then Nixon went to China and tried to regularize the relations with China, actually make it so that China is actually the diplomatic um, entity that the US is dealing with. And that process took a really, really long time. And guess what the sticking point was for all these years? Taiwan. 
That's right. That's right. You got it. Taiwan, Taiwan, Taiwan. I'm telling you. Yeah, look, so, but I'm telling you, so what's happening? So you get this kind of Cold War, you get this settlement. The Chinese say, look, someday we're going to go back and get Taiwan, etc. Where oh, yeah. are we right they- now? And what's going on? Because it seems to us in the West that China has really changed its tune this last little while, respect to Taiwan and in general. I disagree about the last little while because they've always they claim to Taiwan. They never forgot about Taiwan. Okay. Okay. And even back in you know the nineties, uh, they had the Taiwan Straits crisis, and uh, that was when China really realized that militarily they weren't strong enough to credibly threaten Taiwan because the U.S. sent the naval carrier. That was the time of Bill Clinton. And um, that was unfortunately the time when they realized, okay, we got to up our game when it comes to military hardware. So for the last 20, 25 years, they've really just built up their military to a point where now the U.S., aren't exactly sure, the RAND Corporation, they're not sure, even if U.S. goes all out, that they would be able to win against China over Taiwan. Wow. So so the game has changed completely. Well, this is the thing. The U.S. never, never promised to come to the defense of Taiwan. They have something called strategic ambiguity. And this is for several reasons. It's a very delicate situation for that reason. The the U.S. never made a promise to defend Taiwan. We hope they would, but quite honestly, uh, they made it a strategy not to be clear. And there are some very, very good reasons for that. But uh, China increasingly has become more belligerent in terms of pushing that timeline. Now, they've always maintained that Taiwan is a part of China. They were never going to give up on that. But back then, I think during the, the days of, let's say, Hu Jintao, he would say things like, well, you know, it might take a thousand years. It yeah. may take a long, long time. Eventually, Taiwan will return to the motherland. But meanwhile, let's progress. Let's make money. And people like the sound of that. You know, it's, it's not so bad. It's like we have to put up with some, I would say, diplomatic indignities. So during the Olympics, we might have to compete under some stupid moniker like Chinese Taipei. Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> but it's, it's and we're not a part of the WHO, which actually um, does have some real world consequences because, uh, as you know, Taiwan did a fantastic job of combating. Yeah. I'm going to ask you about the COVID-free island that is Taiwan. Yes, yes, yes. I'm going to go, I'm going to go there, but let's, let's go to what China is doing right now, because it seems that they're, are they, are they running air aircraft sorties over Taiwan? Are they threatening you? What, what is the deal right now? The best way to describe it is called, called gray zone tactics, right? So what I mean by gray zone tactics is they're doing all those little moves that are doesn't rise to the occasion of provoking retaliation, but they are salami slicing. So uh, what I mean by salami slicing is the whole fragile basis of peace between the U.S., Taiwan, and China are based on these diplomatic documents that are very, very, very confused and made under great pressure with a lot of ambiguity, but uh, they keep us safe, right? Things like the 92 consensus or, you know, things things like the the three communiques that uh, 
Nixon went to China and, and came up with the, the, the One China Framework. Now, these are all kind of confusing, contradictory, and frankly, if you really look into a nonsense nonsense things, but uh, we, we kind of need them. Well, we kind of need them it's, too. It, it's very interesting, Angelica, because an Irish audience will understand this. There's something that we call in Northern Ireland, the peace in Northern Ireland uh-huh. was created by constructive ambiguity. Constructive ambiguity. Uh-huh. So basically nobody gets pissed off enough to act. Yeah. Okay. And nobody yep. really yep. knows where the end game might actually be. And there's no barriers or borders or hard deadlines put up towards anybody. And you kind of mooch along and you let time do its thing. And, you know, people get concerned about other things and, and then we should be okay. This is, this is more common than you think, because when you have parties who are fundamentally at odds with each other, how do you have peace? You, you generally have peace by putting together this ambiguous thing that everybody can squint at and, and decide it's acceptable, right? And, and so the Chinese, they, with those sorties and all those great zone activities, they're, they're like cutting a slice of the salami. They are doing something that is a little bit borderline. And the more they do it, the more they normalize it. So they fly a sortie over Taiwan's, I, I shouldn't even call it the airspace, but the traditional zone, yep. the air defense identification zone. First of all, it's quite an unreasonably large air defense identification zone, but they would fly into the ADIZ and then the Taiwanese jets will have no choice but to scramble, Mm -hmm. which means they meet them. And it's exhausting to constantly have to do this. It's a drain on resources. It is a drain on morale. And uh, for the Chinese, for the domestic consumption, obviously it's a drain on their military too, but they get a kick out of it. They get a domestic boost. Yeah, they get a boost for us. You just get nervous. Exactly. And it's it's gotten to the point where the, the Taiwanese finally have given up on scrambling every single time they see a jet. And uh, I think it's a necessary thing, but it also feels like, yeah, we've given up on that. We, we can't keep up with them anymore. It's an admission that they basically can overwhelm us with their air power. Now, tell me, Angelica, are people in Taipei today, are they worried? Are they anxious? Are they nervous? <laughs> Not at all. Amazing. Not at all. And this is what I find so interesting. So interesting because... Uh, let me tell you, David, I've been away from Taiwan for a while. And I remember, you know, I came back to Taiwan for COVID, right? 10 years ago in Taiwan, I think people had more awareness and people had more uh, of a sense of um, an, a heightened, you know, it's, like it's, in, it's in the background. It's like a hum in the background that you can, you can feel. This Chinese hum. Um, of anxiety. Like, you know, so what, what if, you know? And then I came back this year and I didn't feel that at all. Everybody was this this beautiful, burgeoning, emergent Taiwanese identity. People were, it's really lovely to see. They were embracing being Taiwanese as something positive. And they've been very punchy and amusing with it. Even our government, like our president, Ms. Tsai Ing-wen, She's too smart to ever declare independence. She's too smart to change the flag. She's too smart to do all those things that step on China's red lines. But you have her Ministry of Foreign Affairs 
declaring Taiwanese independence on Twitter on the regular. It's really quite an amazing thing to see. And I remember thinking to myself, while I was gone, there must have been some change in the fundamentals that favored Taiwan. That's why everybody's all of a sudden so carefree. So I, I took a look into it, you know, just, just a few weeks ago, and I realized the fundamentals have absolutely shifted against Taiwan's favor. Because, well, first of all, first of all, the Chinese military is just now an absolute beast. They have powered up so much over the past 20 to 25 years that it's become like really difficult, even if the U.S. go head to head with them, it'll be, it'll be hard to win. Like, they do war games and we're not winning all of the time. We're not winning most of the time. But also you have a new guy in town, you have Xi. And Xi Jinping is different from his predecessors in terms of how he talks about Taiwan. He no longer talks about Taiwan as something that is theoretically a part of China and will be returned to China in due time. He has made it clear that he wants to get Taiwanese unification done on his watch. Wow. Some people say, I don't know if this is true. Some people say that that's why he extended his tenure. He's made it over open-ended. It's because he wants to get Taiwan done. This is window, right? A window of, of danger that a lot of commentators are noticing. Angelica, you just said to me that, that you think that that Xi Jinping is saying, on my watch, we will get... Yep. So what does that mean in practical terms? And, and, and what does it mean in military terms? And what does it mean for the defense of Taiwan, etc.? Well, uh, first of all, Xi is, uh, his tenure is open-ended now, but he's not a young man. So we're looking at, that's one timeline. And we've got a couple of other timelines to think about, okay? The first timeline is in about five years. That's where a lot of people think the real danger is going to start. The traditional assumption with the invasion is that there's going to be a huge amphibious landing. It's going to be bigger than D-Day, way bigger. And they're going to overwhelm Taiwan all at once, make it a fait accompli. Now, the thing about, the good thing about this scenario is that Taiwan, just geologically, fabulously defensible because you have the Western mudflats coming in, only a few beaches are suitable for landing and they're all booby-trapped to hell. And only a short time of the year when you can actually pass the straits. And then the idea is you're just going to strafe the mudflats with machine guns. Then you roll out the tanks. And even if the amphibious assault succeeds, the casualties will be absolutely massive. So for, for a while, that was a comforting thought. But more and more people are starting to realize that there's another way that China can get Taiwan to capitulate, and that is through a blockade. And the very waters that keep Taiwan safe in the case of the amphibious landing also makes it very, very difficult to be supplied in the case of a blockade. And they don't even need to blockade the whole of the ocean. They just need to make sure that nobody can get in through the ports and they can do sea mines, they can do all sorts of nasty things. 
And the thing that prevents the blockade scenario from coming into being right now is because it's also possible for the rest of the world to do a counter blockade on China. So Taiwan, like every single molecule of hydrocarbons that comes to Taiwan needs to come in by boat. And uh, for instance, natural gas, we only have two weeks worth at any one time. Coal, maybe three months. China, China can have a bit more of a strategic reserve, but they are also a net hydrocarbon importer. But the thing is, they're thinking when you get to around 2025, they're going to have enough naval carriers to escort oil tankers all the way from Iran to China, meaning that a counter blockade is not going to be as effective. So that's one date to keep in mind about five years from now when China will have that capability. There's another date to keep in mind about 10 years from now because the Chinese population is growing, growing, growing. And then in about 10 years, it's going to start falling. And when it starts to fall, it's not going to be a nice gentle fall. It's going to be a rather precipitous fall because the Chinese are just not having that many kids and you have the one child policy and all that stuff. So you have this window between five year and 10 year that a lot of people think might be the time of maximum danger for Taiwan, because that is going to be when China is strong enough to strike before it start losing population and thus power. Wow, that is a fascinating take, because again, I never thought of blockade, counter blockade, then naval power, then demographics, and the clock ticking, which is the premier of China's own life. Yeah, As you said, well, there's... He's what, 65 now, is he? Oh, there, I, I don't know exactly, but there are so many unknown unknowns. And I have to say, the people of Taiwan, they are just so tired of it because they lived under the threat of the Chinese basically all my life. And at some point, fatigue sets in, maybe resignation set in. And a lot of what I hear, and who knows, gosh, I hope they're right, that China won't be that stupid. If it ever attacks Taiwan, it's going to be kneecapping its own economy. It's going to be destroying its own ambitions to be a rich and powerful country. And for what? And that is something that a lot of people tell me they're not going to be dumb enough to do this. They, they, they care about their internal stability. They want to make money. Why would they do this? Even if they win, they're going to lose. But the thing is, are you sure? Are you sure? Because I think it's all very easy to look at the other side and think, oh, they just care about money. And the Chinese does the same to us. Oh, they just care about money. America is just greedy. The, the, the powers, they're just hege hegemons. They just mm -hmm. want to rule the world, etc. But the, the, the truth is every single culture has their values and their ideologies. And um, we can see this in Europe right now, right? Everybody knows which way Europe's bread is buttered. And Angela Merkel has certainly tried to push for a trade deal with China. It would obviously be quite beneficial in terms of euros and renminbis. Yep. But the way the 
Chinese has been acting the wolf warrior democracy, the whole Xinjiang cotton issue, has made the, the Euro-China trade deal increasingly unlikely because the people won't stand for it because they have values. They have values that they see the Chinese are going against. And that is something I'm also afraid of. I think the Chinese, they also have their own values and their ideology. And a very, very key part of their ideology is that Taiwan is a part of China. Is that the territory of China cannot be divided. And that is why they have cracked down that hard on Xinjiang. That is why they have been so brutal over Hong Kong. Because for them, this is a matter of their core value. The core value is keeping China together under a strong government. And uh, this, is, this is where I'm afraid, where if they can do it, even if it doesn't make sense, we still have to figure that they might and be prepared for that eventuality. Angelica, let me, uh, this is fascinating stuff. I want to ask you about John over here is a Trump obsessive. Not, not, not that he likes Trump, but he's obsessed by Trump. And he's been, he's a lot. Hi, Angelica. <laughs> <laughs> but he was making the point to me that the American right are trying to make the case that Joe Biden is weak on China, militarily, economically, et cetera. Is there a sense oh, of that? Absolutely not. Well, let me go back to Trump for just one minute here. Because Trump, he's such a braggart and he is such a windbag. And he was handing out diplomatic concessions to Taiwan like candy. And unfortunately, the Taiwanese ate it up. There were so many Taiwanese pro-Trumpers, and they thought that he was the first American president to actually back Taiwan, to give us some diplomatic dignity, right? He took a call before his inauguration. He took a call from our president, Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, he allowed for a lot of very high-level visits that Taiwan never got ever since we were kicked out of the United Nations. So the sentiment in Taiwan was everybody was rooting for Trump to win re-election. But guess what? All this time, Trump was willing to sell Taiwan absolutely down the river. We know this because of John Bolton's book, and uh, John Bolton would recount how Trump in his office would say, look, there's China. Look, there's Taiwan. They're like two feet apart. If China ever invades, it's all over. We're like 8,000 miles away. We can't do anything. Trump was absolutely not going to lift a finger for Taiwan if China invaded. Okay. And Biden? Well, Biden, this is a separate issue, okay? Biden... First of all, we don't know because the U.S. do maintain this strategic ambiguity and for very, very good reasons. Good, not just diplomatic reasons, but also game theory reasons. But we were afraid before, I'm going to be honest, we were afraid before Biden took office. So there's going to be a reset with China and Taiwan is going to lose a lot of diplomatic ground. But this has absolutely not been the case. Biden has made a lot of quite... Taiwan-friendly appointments, and Biden has been very strong against China. And the best thing that Biden has done for the defense of Taiwan that Trump has absolutely failed to do 
is he has gathered up the allies. He has gathered up the Quad. He has the Japan is now on board, and um, we have seen. It, it's arguable whether it, it's smart or wise or whatever. But he was um, in the al- recent Alaska talks. We saw that the Chinese and American diplomats were very much, very much strongly uh, stood up against each other. Yeah, I mean, it was it was an extraordinary display because it went against everything we've seen for the last 20 years, which is kind of nicey-nicey, you do this, I scratch my back, I scratch yours. I mean, the, the Americans and the Chinese were at verbal war from, from the get-go in Alaska. I, yeah, I, I think there's no doubt about it. We are seeing a realignment. We are seeing the beginning of Cold War II, and Taiwan is a place where it can all go hot. So just the last word on this, so... Taiwan is the Berlin Wall of the new Cold War, would you say? I, I would say that's a very apt comparison. I, I think we, we, we are like, like West Berlin because we are reliant. Um, but in another way, um, there's more of a nuance than that because I would say the West defended West Berlin because of principles, because we wanted to do what's right. But Taiwan has tremendous strategic importance just by where we are. So if you think of Japan, it's like an island chain all around China, alongside China. And Taiwan is kind of the tailbone of that island chain. If China managed to get full control of Taiwan, it would have secured essentially what is an unsinkable aircraft carrier. Now, I'm not going to say that if China takes Taiwan, that Japan is next, or it's necessarily going to go on an imperialistic streak. But I think if Taiwan becomes a part of China, Japan would not be able to be independent. It, it will be strongly in China's sphere of influence. Japan would not be able to take a fart without getting permission from China. And all of Asia is going to be pink, if not red. We will leave it there. Such a beautifully evocative and visual way to end, Angelica. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me on, David. I've been, uh, you know, it's, it's such a delight to talk to you. And this is a, this is a matter that's uh, near and dear to my heart. I truly, truly hope that there is a there can be a good outcome to this. And I think it all begins with international cooperation. And uh, that's that's what I, very heartening coming from the uh, Biden team. Japan is on board, America's on board. Actually, a big question is, a, a big buzzword, horizontal escalation. How many people can we get on board? Would Europe come to us? Well, you may, you would may... Australia come to us? But, but the Aussies probably would. The Aussies, the Aussies seem to be you, and you might have the, the muscular, the muscular power of Ireland behind you. <laughs> I hope so. Yes. <laughs> okay, Angelic, that was great. We will see. You. This is great. We, you're, you're, you've, you've talked your way onto the podcast as a regular from now on. Great stuff. Oh, wonderful. Well, consider me your Greater China Taiwan correspondent from now on. Perfect. Angelica, you're in. Talk to you soon. Bye. Talk to you soon. Bye. 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 Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Angelina was great crack. Great fun, but also really unusually just makes you think in a certain in a different way. Well, I was taking notes as she was talking there. And like, where do we start? Because there's there's so much stuff that she spoke about, but there's a couple of things I love. I love the image of Trump looking at the map and going, look, Taiwan's only two foot from China. That's two inches away. <laughs> I know. But, okay, let's start with the whole idea of if China are going to invade, that it's going to be within a five to 10 year window. Because, number one, Xi Jinping is getting old. Number two, the one-child policy that China pursued way back is coming back to haunt them. Yeah. And possibly, and this is just me thinking, that Biden might be strong enough to take on China. Although, having said that, Yellen's comment about being adversarial. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think what was most interesting for me, the big takeaway from me, is a framework to look at that part of the world. Yeah. And the framework to look at where Taiwan sits. And the fact that her conclusion was that Japan couldn't fart without China. I quite like that too, if <laughs> Taiwan crazy, goes. <laughs> um, but also the idea that there's cultures have deep, deep, it's like the creed in religion. But what do you believe in? Right? Yeah, yeah. And most cultures believe in something more than money. Look, you look in this, this country. I'd like to think so. This country, a hundred years ago, this country went independence. Made no sense economically. Yeah. But we did it, right? Yeah. The Brits and Brexit makes no sense economically, but they did it, yeah. right? Eventually, there comes a moment of national culture, which always trumps economics. And that's why economists get things wrong, because, in fact, one of the most popular books before the First World War was a book about how the First World War, Germany, France, UK were so integrated economically, they would never go to war because it made no sense economically. Yeah, yeah. And they did go to war. So, And that was one of the things she, she spoke about as well, is people questioning why China would invade Taiwan. Because they she said it would kneecap their own economy. Well, they have a much, much longer term worldview. I think it was Deng Xiaoping was asked about 
the French Revolution. And he was asked, Mr. Den, what do you make of the French Revolution? And he said, it's far too early to tell. <laughs> yeah. That's, That's how they a good think. one. I like that. They think in generations. And again, yeah, even if yeah. you look, I'm doing a lot of reading at the moment on why Europe and not China in 1492. So how come Europe ended up being the continent that enslaved the world? How come Europe invaded Asia? How come Europe invaded Africa? How come Europe invaded America? How come the age of imperialism was a European thing, not a Chinese thing? Because the Chinese yeah. were much further advanced than we yeah, yeah, much yeah. further advanced. And it's because the Chinese see the integral, they call themselves the middle kingdom. We are the middle of the world, yeah. right? And their borders, with the exception of Tibet, because Tibet was, a, was an invasion into a sovereign country, yeah. but with the exception of Tibet, have been broadly fixed for thousands of years, right? That's the first thing. Yeah. Second thing is one of the reasons that many people think Europe did expand outwards was that Europe was what they call polycentric. There were many centers of power. And when you have many centers of power, like small countries, mm. they're actually naturally much more competitive and they can be much more innovative. And the third thing is that the Chinese Mandarin class, which had been, has again been running China for many, many years, took innovation, looked at innovation, saw the downside of innovation. So I think they, they had paper money before anybody. Mm. They had fireworks before anybody. They had gunpowder before anybody, right? They had almost everything you can think of. They mm. had the biggest navy before anybody else, right? They had the biggest army, but they- And that's why they didn't want to trade with the UK. And they, well, exactly, because the UK had nothing to offer them. Yeah. But they never expanded outwards. And therefore- having made that settlement with themselves, parts of the world that are for them ever Chinese, like Hong Kong yeah. and Taiwan, are simply unfinished business that has to be finished for the country or the nation yeah. to feel whole again. And that is what she's saying. And that for me is, as a takeaway, that's as good takeaway as I'm going to get this weekend. <laughs> Stop. I'm talking about conversational takeaways for Jesus' sake. As a conversational takeaway, Davis, that is the best one you're going to have all weekend. Now, why I have you there again. Why not use the time when you're locked up to learn economics? Join me on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Let's learn economics together. We have the economics course. Macroeconomics has never been as essential to understand. We have the Ask Mac tutorials every other week. We have Q&A. We've got the reading list. And more importantly, you become part of the community. If you have a question, if you have something that's going on, you want to ask me, join me on Patreon. Email in. I will answer your question. But more importantly, it's ad-free. Just you and me and your man across the way. Hey. Patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. And let's figure out the world together. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started.